Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. The longest part of the night rests just in front of the most brilliant part of dawn. Sunrise is impressive, but just before dawn is where all the beauty of a new day rests. In life, it's the darkness just before the dawn that's the hardest part to step into, but that's also where the brilliance is found. And in this new study of 1 Peter, we'll discover the blessings that can come in the darkest nights of our soul. Well, as our children are dismissed, if you're going to stay with us this morning, I encourage you to grab a Bible, and uh, you can, if you're going to grab one of the red ones, it's page 926. If you're going to follow along with me in, in uh, sort of the old leather-bound paperback or whatever you got, uh, you're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at the second half of that book. You can, of course, you can always pull out your phones and just turn there. Don't even worry about flipping pages. Uh, but that's where we're going to go this morning. This is now the fourth part of our series on First Peter, and we've titled this series, Dawn is Coming, because this was an underlying theme to what Peter was addressing in the context of his letter to the uh, churches of Asia Minor. He calls them the churches of the dispersion, those who've been scattered across the world, and it really is, I mean, there's local churches that he's talking to, but he's also wanting to talk to the universal church in a time of trial and temptation, a a time of deep and painful suffering. And, And in the midst of all of that suffering, he wants to encourage them to say, it's not over. A new day is coming. Because of the resurrection, a new dawn is coming. So what I need you to do, if you're suffering right now, if you're feeling the weight of the world right now, I just need you to keep pressing on. I just need you to keep moving. I just need you to keep rejoicing, keep growing, keep reaching, because there is a new day that is dawning, and you as a follower of Christ can live into that in the power of the resurrection. I mean, that's, that's at the core of it. Now, when I started this series a few weeks ago, I, I didn't quite put all this together, but as I've read more of what Peter's doing, I've started to see the way that Peter is approaching pain and suffering and trials in a very similar way to the way that you and I do. I mean, think about being on a plane for a minute. What do they tell you? If the, if the oxygen masks ever fall out of the ceiling, what are you supposed to do first? Put your own mask on first, right? First, take care of yourself. Then you can take care of your child or anybody around you who can't do it. And then we start to ask, what the heck is going on? Like, why is this happening, right? But first, first things first, take care of yourself. And And I thought about this this week because I was driving up on Wednesday to Asheville. I had a meeting there, and as I was driving, if you remember Wednesday, it was a terrible rainy day, uh, and I was on 26. And on good days, I hate I-26. On rainy days, it's miserable, right? It's, It's just a piece of hell itself has descended on earth and settled into that 30 mile stretch of highway. It's terrible. And uh, I'm right in the middle of it, and I'm almost to Hendersonville. I realize how often I talk about my bad traffic incidents. Like, this must be where God works on my sanctification, like right there in the middle of that. But I'm I'm almost to Hendersonville, and as I'm approaching Hendersonville that day, uh, all of a sudden traffic just comes to a screeching halt, right? And I'm, I'm panicking because I have my daughter in the back seat, Eliza, and she was asleep, and I was like, okay, okay, okay. And, and so I come to a stop, and immediately I feel this surge of adrenaline just go through my body, and I breathe, and I take a few deep breaths, and I just make sure that I'm okay, and then the, the next thing I do is I look up in the mirror, and I adjust it to see if I can see her face. Is she okay? Okay, she's not, she's still asleep. Good. We're okay. And then I do this. 
what the heck is going on up there, right? I start looking at the person in front of me, and immediately my anger is with them because they're the ones who I saw the red lights first. I'm like, surely it can't be them. There's somebody else beyond them. And I start, and we do this, don't we? I mean, it's like I got to figure out what just happened because I need to know who the culprit behind this is. And, you know, who did this, right? Like, what am I going to do when I find them? In fact, in this case, it was just a few cars up, but a poor fellow in a rider truck, his car broke down on the highway in this construction zone, and he just had to kind of pull it off to the side. I'm like, what am I going to do? Stare at him, right? Like, yeah, come on. What would you do that for, right? Like, just keep driving. I can't believe you would just stop in the middle of the highway, right? I'm not going to do anything, but it's my gut compulsion to do that. Like, that's what I want to do. I want to, in that moment, in that space to find someone to blame, someone to pin this on, someone to kind of reach out to and, and, and make an accusation against. And Peter sort of does this through his letter. He helps us because the Christians in the first century, they certainly are facing all kinds of trial, all kinds of temptation, all kinds of problems. And in this space, Peter starts to work through that same process. Chapter 1, you remember it. He says, just check on yourself. Think about what God has done in you. In chapter 1, let, let me remind you, if, if you weren't here, You have been given new birth. You've been given new life. You've been given this brand new beautiful inheritance from God and it's yours. You can live into that personally, individually. Just check check yourself for a minute. This is your reality, folks. As you live into every single trial that might come, that's what you can face. And, And then he presses on and we talked a little bit about this last week. He says, but you don't have to live it alone. God is building up this community of faith, like living stones stacked upon each other that support each other, that are there for each other, that belong to one another. There's a larger group, right? So we check on ourselves, we can check on others and know that everybody's okay in the midst of this. And then he moves us into that third area. i got to find out who's to blame. Somebody's to blame in all of this. But what's interesting about the way that we as followers of Christ are supposed to respond to this, we respond in a very different way from the rest of the world. You see, our new life together, and in fact, it is, a, it is a together. I said it this way last week. I said belonging is what we find, and belonging is found when we're willing to let others into our lives and we're willing to let other, our gifts out. Right? There's this mutuality. We, we find that. We find others in this space. That's, that's absolutely true. But the sense of belonging and who the others are becomes infinitely expanded in the context of Christianity, which is very different from the rest of the world. In fact, the way I would say it is simply this. Our new life together leads to new life with others. We get that. Even when we aren't too fond of the others in our life. And this is where it gets challenging. Because in this space where we're checking on others, it's easy for me to check on my daughter in the back seat. But it's harder for me to check on the person who threatened my life on the highway because they pulled off onto the side. It's harder for me to say, how's your life? How are things going on for you? Are you okay in the midst of all of this? And as, as, it, as easy as it is for us to do that with our own family, as, as it would be for me, as Christians, our, our response should be expanded in this way to the whole world. It should expand out. In fact, we should opt for life, and as Peter's going to get to, we should opt for life together, even with those who are opposed to our very life. This is the craziness of what Peter is about to say in verses uh, 13 and following. And, And I know this is a huge pill to swallow, but let me just remind you of how he closes last week. What he said last week, and Aaron didn't read that 
that this morning, but I want to read to you where we ended last week. Peter said last week, conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles. And he's using that language in very specific terms to say those who are outside of the family of God. And I want you to do it for this reason right here, so that though they malign you, so they tr even though they treat you ev as uh, evilly, uh, as evildoers, even though they do this, they treat you as if you're in the wrong, they'll be able to see your honorable deeds, and then they'll be able to glorify God. You'll be able to pull them into the family of faith if you just conduct yourselves honorably amongst them. And Peter, you know, as he says this, the natural aim for the Christian community in this space we know is redemption for everyone, of all of God's creation. But it's interesting to me that as Christians, one of the things we often do, particularly with people who are opposed to us or at odds with us, is we say, yes, I know God loves them, but someone else can love them, not me. Right? Someone else can take care of that, not me. I don't need to do that. I don't need to be the one that does love them. I don't need to be the one that does engage with them. God loves them. God loves the whole world. God can bring his redemption to them in their life, but it won't be through me. It won't be my actions that do that. It'll be somebody else who does that. And, and that would be the gut response, uh, response of every, anyone who sees this. Like, yep, yeah, Peter, we get it. Right? We understand that we're supposed to treat them, you know. But surely you don't mean that person. Surely you don't mean this person. Surely you're not talking about the one who is causing us all this pain. The one who's using us at night as tiki torches in the middle of his garden. You're not talking about that one, are you? And Peter just goes on and he cuts straight to the chase in the next verse. He doesn't leave any, any sort of question marks in their mind. He says again in verse 13, remember he says, as though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds, glorify God. And then he says, immediately addressing the elephant in the room, for the Lord's sake, another way, I mean, we say this all the time, for God's sake, folks. That's what he's saying. For God's sake, accept the authority of every human institution in your life. Just do it. Accept the authority of every human institution in your life. And Peter, 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 do you remember Emperor Nero? I mean, you live in Rome, right, Peter? Like, you know what he's doing. You do realize the way he's taking our brothers and sisters and dipping them in tar and hanging them on, on posts in the middle of the garden and lighting them off. You know he does that, right? Like, you remember, this is the man that you're talking about when you talk about authority. And, and Peter just cuts right to it. He, in the very next verse, he says, honor all the authorities in line. But he says, whether it be the emperor, because I know that's what's on your mind. That's the first thing you think of. Whether it's the emperor as supreme or whether it's the governors that he's sending into all of your lands to take over your lands and taking away your freedom and all of those things. Whether it's the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. And Peter, in a beautiful way here, he starts with himself because Peter is in Rome. He says, well, look, I've got to do this and I'm living in the belly of the beast. Like Emperor Nero's right down the road from me. He's across a sea from y'all. But we need to start with the emperor himself and honor him in this space. And then we can move to all those who govern your lives. All those who are in the diaspora who govern your lives. He says, for in verse uh, 15 and 16, he says, For it is God's will that by doing right you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. And of course, in this case, he's referring back to the authorities. They're ignorant about the things of God. There are some foolish things that they do. But if you continue to do right, even when they're ignorant, you will silence the ignorance of the foolish. And as servants of God, here's what I want to ask you to do. Live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Don't do evil things with it in this context. 
He says, I know you are. And, and, and remember, he's talking to people in Asia Minor and beyond Rome. They have been taken over by foreign occupation. And in that space, they feel their freedom stripped away. They feel it taken away. And he says, I know you're a free people. I know even beyond what you, you feel in your heart, you're free because Christ has set you free. But please don't use your freedom for evil in this world. You can live in righteousness and holiness right now, and you can live in a way that mirrors God's life. And when you do this, you will choose what, what is right, even when they don't know what's right and wrong. Right, when he says that God sent the governors to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right, he's actually kind of being a little facetious here. He's like, yeah, you know, they, they punish the ones who do wrong, and they, they praise those who do right. And they're like, yeah, right. Peter's like, I get it. I understand. It's all a facade. It's what they say. It's the rhetoric that they put out. And I realize that they constantly do what is wrong. But listen, if you live your lives the way that God wants you to live your life, you'll show them what's right. If you live your life the way that God wants, you'll show them what truly evil things are. You'll be able to start transforming that. And, and Peter wants to direct us in a brand new way. Because oftentimes what happens in the face of evil things in our world is we return evil for what? Evil. We respond in that way. It's a natural human response. This is, this is the imitation response to evil. You hurt me, I hurt you back. I used to joke about this growing up because Aaron and I have dated since we were teenagers. And, and if I would just come by and just kind of pop her on the arm with a little love tap, she'd turn around, she'd wail on me. I mean, it wasn't like a love tap bag. It was like, brrr, you know, my arm became this speed bag for a few minutes. She'd just wail for a few minutes. And I'm like, honey, you all, and still to this day, you say one small thing, she responds in kind with 50 others, right? It's just, but we do that. As human beings, we respond evil for evil in this way. And this is that imitation response that is so natural natural for us, but that Peter wants to push us past. He says imitation isn't the response that you have because imitation is an evil in and of itself. To, to respond evil for evil, well, that's still evil, and that's not, even though it's your gut compulsion, not what God is calling you to. And God's also not calling you in this space to isolation, which is also something we might do. In the face of trial and persecution in the midst of an argument, what do we do sometimes? We isolate from that individual. We pull away from that individual. We see this all the time in the context of Christianity. When Christianity is not doing well with the society around it, we isolate off from the society around us. We become this little hub unto ourselves. And some of you may do this as a coping mechanism, a defense mechanism in the context of your own life. You'll pull away from that relationship. Anytime tension comes, I'm just not going to talk to them anymore. Anytime tension comes or hardship comes, I'm just not going to engage. I'm just not going to be around anymore. And so Peter's going to argue that, that imitation is certainly not helpful. Isolation is not helpful. But there is a helpful way in which we can respond. And I'm going to call this the way of infiltration. Right? The Christian response to evildoers is not found in our imitation. It's not found in our isolation. But it's found in our infiltration. Now, I know that's catchy because there's three I words there and that's... Just the alliteration that they tell me I should do in preaching. But, but let me talk to you a little bit about why I chose that third word, why that infiltration is so important. It's not like infiltration like an army, you know, like where an army infiltrates enemy campground, all that. That's not what I'm talking about at all. It's more like an infiltration that happens in the water cycle. Infiltration in the water cycle is where water comes down into the soil and it seeps into the soil and digs below the surface. It starts to dig into the very space that it lands, wherever that space is. It could be rocky uh, ground, it could be soft ground, it could be sandy ground, it could be any of these spaces. And yet when the water comes into those spaces, it just seeps into the spaces. 
becomes a part of. It becomes a part of the system and gets into that. And in the middle of that, what happens even on rocky ground is it starts to bring a richness to the soil that's right there. It starts to transform the soil that at one time might be hard and rocky and it breaks it down and it prepares it so that it can give new life. And that, my friends, is what Peter is wanting us to do with those who are in our lives who are evildoers. That is what Peter wants us to do with those who treat us wrong and poorly. He wants us to get closer, not isolate, not imitate, not respond in kind or pull away, but he wants us to infiltrate in those spaces, to get right into those spaces and to infiltrate their lives with the life of Christ, with the kindness of Christ around them. And in the case of governing authorities over you, how can you honor their full humanity? How can you get closer to their lives? Honor their status. Honor their position. Honor the, uh, the position that they're in. That's why Peter goes on in verse 17, and I, I love this, this sort of movement he says. He starts off, he says, honor everyone. Right? Honor everyone. And then he goes into a very uh, uh, clear directive towards the body of Christ. Love your fellow believers. Love the family. It's a, it's a word there that means the brotherhood or sisterhood. Love the family of God. And then fear God. Have a healthy respect for God in your life. And then, just in case you didn't get it, honor the emperor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember when I told you to honor everyone? The emperor is part of everyone. I need you to honor him as well. I need you to honor him. And he's like, Peter, that's, that's going uphill. right? He's the one who's killing us. He's the one who's ordering all this. Yep, but he's in everyone. Eugene Peterson does a fantastic job of, of parsing this out in his paraphrase. He starts the very beginning of this verse instead of just saying honor everyone. He says, treat everyone you meet with dignity. I love this. Because this does rest at the core of what Peter's trying to explore here. That every human being is worthy of dignity and respect. Every human being is, is worthy of us looking them in the eyes and seeing their full, full humanity, no matter how much they hurt us or bother us. And so he says, treat everyone with dignity, love your spiritual family, revere God, and respect the government. And even though Eugene Peterson makes this a broad sort of sweeping reality of the government, I think Peter was specific about the emperor. Because this is not just about governing authorities. This is about the people that you despise and the people who despise you. And that's what Peter is trying to get at here. You want me to treat that person with dignity? You want me to treat that person who treats me like a street lamp? I, I mean, literally? You want me to treat that person as if they have full humanity when they think I'm just something to be used in the garden at night? Like, they don't respect my humanity at all. And Peter says, yeah. That's exactly what I'm asking you to do. That's exactly what Christ asks us to do because this is the example that he set for us. And how do you navigate that? How do you do that in your life? How do you, how do you help to navigate those who hold power over you, who persecute you, who harm you, who do all those things? Peter says, just follow Jesus' example. Follow it. It's an example of submission. We submit our lives to those who are around us. When we, when we submit, here's what happens. When we submit to others who are around us, we no longer imitate evil responses. We no longer isolate ourselves. Rather, we start to infiltrate their reality. We start to get closer to the reality of those who might dominate the weak, who might, you know, sort of lay prey on the vulnerable amongst us. But we start to show them as we get closer what it looks like for someone to honor someone else's full humanity. Right? Here's the interesting thing. They may see you as a non-human. They may see you as less than human and not give you any dignity at all, but the moment that you start to show them dignity, 
The moment you start to restore their full humanity, something changes in them. And they're like, well, no animal could treat me this way. This is unbelievable, right? They start to change the way they see you. And when they change the way they see you, they start changing the way they see the world. And everything around them starts to change. You start to, when you start to submit your will to the will of another, that begins to create honor in each other. You see the way in which both of you are worthy of honor. Both of you are worthy of dignity and respect as human beings. Now, in the next few verses, Peter takes this in an, in an entirely different way. Still kind of the similar situation, but in verses 18 through 20, he starts to talk about the institution of slavery. Now, let me say this very clearly because there's been historically misunderstandings about this. Peter is in no way upholding the ancient system of slavery. He's not trying to build a case for why this system is great. He's not talking about the morality of slavery at all in this space. That's not what he's doing. He didn't want to speak about the ethical framework on it. What he is doing is this. As he speaks to the slaves who sit in that system, he speaks to a group of people who have never been granted human dignity. According to the system, the world that they live in, they're not human at all. And he speaks to them as humans... And he offers them a path to resistance to their masters. He says, look, the very people who don't treat you like human beings, I want you to start honoring them as human beings. I want you to start honoring them for, the res- for this position that they're in. I want you to start respecting them in that position. And as you do that, that starts to transform them. That starts to transform they, the way they see the world. And for Peter, this is a very real way of overturning the entire system there. He says, you already know. Servants, slaves, you already know that you are children of God, but they don't know that yet. They don't understand that about themselves yet, but you know and you fear God and you honor God and you live in that way and you've received human dignity from Him, dignity that is beyond this world. They don't know that reality, so honor them, submit to them in their position and show them that they are worthy of respect. Because of what they do? No, not at all. Because of the title they hold? No, not at all. Because they too are a child of God and they just don't know it yet. So in your life, in those spaces where there are people who you can't stand to be around, who you despise, and in your mind, you may not say it out loud, but in your mind, we treat them as less than human. This is the very space to learn how to submit and how to recognize that God has created them as a beautiful son or daughter of the Most High. And how can we live our lives in a way that draws that out every single day? And why do we do this? Well, because Jesus did it. That's where Peter ends. Jesus did it first. He showed us how to do it. And there's sometimes in our lives where we're like, well, Jesus did that, but that doesn't mean I have to do it. Not according to Peter. That's exactly why you should do it. He goes on in verse 21. He says, for to this you, say me, we have been called. You have been called to this because Christ also suffered, leaving you a what? An example. This is an example for you to follow, for you to take up, for you to live into, so that you should follow in his steps. Well, what were his steps? His steps are simple. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth, even in the context of his crucifixion. And that's what he's actually talking about. He goes on, he says, when he was abused, what did he do? Did he return and imitate? No. He didn't isolate. He didn't pull away. He just didn't return the abuse. When he suffered, he didn't threaten them. But he entrusted himself instead to God who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the cross so that he could free us from sin, so that we might live for righteousness, for by his wounds, and this is where Peter is tapping into Isaiah and quoting him, by his wounds, by his stripes, 
you, me, we're healed. Our entire lives are healed in the context of his submission. We are put back together. And then he closes it out in this way, again quoting from Isaiah. For all of you were going astray like sheep. For all you like sheep have gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. He knew that every single one of us had gone wayward in our life. We pursued our own, uh, our own self-interest. We lost sight of our creator and all of those things. And in the midst of that submission, through his death, he's able to pull us back. Christ is able to pave a way for us to find reconciliation with our Father. And he says, and now you're called to do the same to others around you, to submit your life to others around you so that they could find their way. It's not just one or two of us. It's not just a select few. It's all of us. Like the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, 10, he says, It is by God's will that you have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for what? All. For all. He was sacrificed in this way for all to come. The ancient fathers of the church would sometimes talk about it this way. They'd say that Christ became like us. He submitted himself into becoming a human being like us. Why? So that we could become like God. So that we could live like God. So that we could be exalted in that way. And if we become like him in our lives, that means that to, to, for those who we are at odds with, those who have power over us, those who mistreat us, those who dehumanize us, like Christ, here's what we're supposed to do. Submit ourselves so that they can see that they too are sons and daughters of God. And you know, as I think about Peter writing this letter to the church, the one thing that is very clear to me is, I don't think Peter wrote this out of like nowhere, right? It wasn't just like thoughts in his head. Like he had a real experience with Christ that led him to write this idea of submission. Right? If you remember for a few minutes, Peter is always the belligerent, loudmouth, you know, foolish person who speaks when he shouldn't, right? That, that's Peter. We get that. And Peter had these moments where Jesus would say, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'll be hurt and harmed and they're going to persecute me and do this. And Peter does what? He does that imitation. What does he say? Oh, no, you're not. I will defend you to the death, Jesus. That ain't what's happening. And Jesus looks at him in that moment. Just after calling him the rock, he looks at him and he says, Satan, <laughs> accuser, deceiver, get behind me. That's so what he calls him in that moment. Peter's like, whoa, man, just trying to help you, buddy. Just trying to be there for you. But no, you missed it. You missed what I'm all about. You're missing what this kingdom looks like. And I would like to say that Peter got it then, but he didn't. Because we see this, this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane later when Jesus goes and prays just before he's crucified. And in the garden that night, it's Peter, James, and John, this group of three who kind of get close to Jesus. Jesus asked them to pray. He's going to go over here and pray. And in the middle of that, the guards come. And they come, the, the high priests come, and they've got their weapons in hand and all those things. And they're coming to arrest Jesus. And in that space, Peter, who's been invited into the inner circle, he steps up in defense of Jesus. He steps up into that moment, and, and many of you know this story, story already. In that space, the servant steps forward towards Jesus, and Peter draws a sword, and he cuts the servant's ear off. Just right there. I mean, I don't know why I didn't go with somebody bigger. He just, you know, maybe, it's, maybe he could get by with the servant. He was a tiny little guy. I don't, I don't know what he was, but he went for the servant. And once again, Jesus is like, Peter, Peter, come on, man. You still don't get it. And Peter who in that moment was closest to Jesus, Jesus steps away from in order to help his, his accuser. 
In that moment, when Peter was trying to do what he thought was right, Jesus is like, no, Peter. And he moves away from him in that space, and he picks up the servant's ear, and he puts it back on his head. And everybody's like, whoa, that's weird stuff. <laughs> like it's a Van Gogh moment before Van Gogh was ever around, right? Puts this ear back on him, and he steps back, and he submits. And fight. And he had a whole troop of men around there. Peter would have came out swinging, right? He's like, that's not what it's about. That's not it. And he lays down his life. And I, I imagine, I kind of think of Peter writing this out with that memory in his head. He just pauses and he's like, yeah, I remember that. And it wasn't just for him. It wasn't just for Jesus to do that. He wanted me to do it too. That's the way he wanted me to live my life. And it's not just for me. It's how he wants us to live our lives. Verse 21, for to this, you, you've been called. That's what you're, that's what you're called to. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. Brothers and sisters, this is how we handle those who oppose us. This is how we handle and respond to those who hold power over us. This is how we respond to any sort of disagreement that we have in our lives. And can you imagine how our world would change just a little bit if we all did this? Can you imagine what our political atmosphere might look like if, if we started to change the way we identified people across the aisle from us to look at them as human instead of less than human? Can you imagine how this would change the way that we saw people who were outside of our borders from us if we changed the way that we saw them and started bringing dignity back? And a grand scale, how, can you imagine how this would change us locally if we would change our way we see people who live in houses that look different from ours, who drive cars that are strange and beat up and old? And Can you imagine how this would change us? If we would start to give dignity to those who are strung out and addicted and unemployed and downtrodden in our life and we gave them dignity, respect, saw them as human beings. What would happen if those who we stand opposed to started looking to us more and more like human beings that God died for? And in our lives, how can we not move into imitation, the eye for the eye, Avoid the isolation that's so easy for us to do when we just sort of cloister up and separate off. But how can we infiltrate those communities? How can we get closer to those sons and daughters who God died for? How can we dig into the soil of another life and see the full humanity that is there and that Christ died for? This is our call. And this is where Peter starts. You want to know how to deal with Difficult situations in your life, trials and tribulations and pain between other human beings, start with a person who harms you the most and declare once again that they are a son and daughter of God for whom he died. Would you stand with me this morning? Almighty God, we thank you for your love which is displayed in full force to us through Jesus Christ, a love that models complete submission. God, this morning we lay ourselves down and surrender all of who we are back unto you. We ask God that in these closing moments as our worship team sings for us one more song, that you, Spirit of God, would speak to us in powerful and revealing ways. Show to us those spaces in our lives where 
maybe we have not treated others with the full dignity they deserve to honor truly everyone in our lives and help us to live into that even this week. And God, we offer to you in this context of closing worship not only our songs, but we also offer to you our gifts. We offer to you the gifts of our tithe and offering, and we ask, God, that this would be one small sign of our surrender to you and to your will and your way in this world. And so, God, bless us now as we give and bless us as we go, that you might be with us in both spaces, now and forever. Amen and amen. Ushers, would you come to serve?